Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Square, episode two, a novel by Ed Adams. SI6. Robert Alton had been reading routine information feeds from his office in SI6. He'd just seen an unverified incident from Cairo. It was some sort of shooting. He knew that SI6 had an operation in that area. SI6 was the special operations unit dedicated to homeland security of the United Kingdom. Many people had heard of MI5, although Alton thought the real action was with SI6, who were involved in special operations when things were likely getting out of hand. On average, there were between 20 and 30 special operations running related to terrorism-related situations. A dozen years ago, it would have been around 10 operations and half of those involved Ireland. Nowadays, there was a full spectrum of countries involved with Middle East, Afghanistan and Africa high on the list. Ireland still featured, but there was a small percentage of where the time was spent. Robert Alton had been with the unit for about five years and after the bewildering rush of situations when he joined... He was now good at identifying the serious ones. He was also directly involved with complex events. Since the emergence of internet and satellite television and the increased use of digital mobile phones, most aspects of security and surveillance had actually become more straightforward. There was a lot more computer power involved, but the systems could sense and decode many more topics. The Americans had started a couple of big data analysis projects, got legal backing, and now the UK could follow in their footsteps. It was high-tech, although the ability to sift and find things was still often after the fact, unless the agencies received a direct tip-off. A recent intelligence coming in from the security people at GCHQ Cheltenham, England, was about a series of plots related to destabilising central London. There was no clear basis for the attack, but the underlying reason seemed to relate to a fanatical unit protesting about the demise of the state of Mesopotamia. It all sounded esoteric and the work of crazies, but there still needed to be an investigation. Robert was to work with Karen Martin on this assignment. Karen was her field name, and they'd worked together several times. Robert Alton clicked a speakerphone. Can somebody update me on the Cairo situation? There's been a shooting... We have more information via the local police. A lone woman sitting in a cafe shot twice by sniper's bullets. High velocity. Fatal. The local police are on the scene. It was close to the French embassy. Nationality is unknown. Alton flipped the phone off. He knew. He wouldn't be close to what Karen had been doing, but he was sure that it was her mission that had been terminated. His own knowledge gap would mean that was deniability. The shooting would be written up as a senseless act of violence. He pulled up the file for Karen's mission onto his computer screen. He knew that Karen would keep things hidden. The background showed a series of transmissions intercepted from Turkey. The Turks were still using a cryptography which GCHQ could already unscramble. Crypto sold to them by the Americans, who had also intercepted the same messages. The supposition was that a cell of Al-Aktar had assembled in mainland Europe and were considering a key urban target. Two cities had been selected, Frankfurt and London, based upon their financial significance. There was no clarity about individuals involved or the basis of the attack. The immediate thoughts had been related to aircraft-based attacks similar to the 9-11, but there was no actual intelligence to support this. After a couple of days' delay, the Turkish authorities had alerted the US and the UN, and the information had rippled through to various security organisations. 
Robert Alton had seen this situation before, where the security channels became so choked with the information that anyone with even vague access would know that they had discovered it. This would be a deterrent to whoever was planning the attack, the knowledge that half the world's security services were on a specific alert. So at a first level, the subtext said this was not a real situation. That was when he had discussed a plan with Karen. He remembered Karen's scepticism, similar to his own initial analysis, except Alton knew that the source prior to the Turkish intercept had been very strong. It came from a place that didn't break cover. It would mean that the particular network would need to cease business after sending this alert. A high price, unless this was something solid. Alton could also see that the sources implicated other nation states and suggested that the funding for the attack was bigger than a typical terrorist cell. Robert Alton had requested Karen to chase it down, quietly and undercover. Let the big position play out upstairs, which would result in the threat being written as a false alarm. Karen asked for support. Investigations to check the source and an unknown to act as an insulation layer. Karen's investigators had discovered that there was something in transit. Referred to as the packages, 60 small items to be shipped via Egypt under cover of a goods load. Alton would need to call in the investigations to find out more about their discovery. Karen's file didn't have detail of what was in the packages. Alton knew that the rest of Karen's support team would have gone into hiding after the shooting. He would need to coax them back into the open and to get them away from Egypt. He pressed the phone again. Doug, it's Richard. We have a problem. I will need some help. And someone, TL4 Arab, speaking. I'm thinking, Mohammed, can we meet? This will be ears only. Lambeth Walk suggested Doug. Give me ten minutes to find Mohammed Mubarain and we'll be along. 11.30 by the snack bar. Gerald. Most people who saw Gerald for the first time would avert their eyes. He lived in a squat near the Balls Pond Road area of London. Gerald Riley called the area part of the up-and-coming Hoxton but he lived by deserted warehouses at a Saturday ad hoc marketplace where middle Europeans would attempt to sell dubious goods from cardboard cartons. Gerald lived by his wits and scrounged a living from small errands and some petty crime. Gerald walked around in a grey raincoat with a knotted scarf and a trilby hat. In a clean and well-fitted version, this could have made Gerald look respectable, but with the uncared-for styling that Gerald displayed, the overall impression was that of a scruffy down-and-out. A grey, drizzling rain had persisted all day. It flattened the landscape and blurred detail. Car lights smeared and sound deadened. This was not a good rain, just a persistent one. Gerald was shuffling back to where he lived. He looked as grey as the surroundings and blended into the general misery. Things had not always been this way, and Gerald had gone through a good education until the point where drugs had seen him expelled from multiple schools. The last time he just ran away and travelled south to London as a missing person. He didn't have any serious money and nowhere to live and no plans. He'd been picked up at the station by a do-gooder who had helped him into a temporary hostel. There he had made contacts and become a better versed in the art of street life, which was now his main means of survival. He'd met Lucy near to the hostel and they turned tricks around the back of the North London train stations to buy drug money. One cold night for the second time. Lucy had OD'd and been taken away in the ambulance. They had taken Gerald too. He later had to identify her after she had passed away. The hospital staff had a care worker present who offered Gerald rehab.
Gerald decided he owed it to Luce to get straight, went away to a turnaround place for several weeks to break the habit. It had worked, and they initially moved Gerald to a small hostel to get started on his climb back to civilization. It wasn't an easy climb, and he'd been robbed on the first night and then blamed for another robbery which he didn't commit. He'd decided it was better to get out, and so with a little clothing, but with a stash of items in a Tesco's supermarket trolley, he had struck out to find a squat. Gerald now lived in an unheated and semi-derelict house due for demolition with several others of similar circumstance. He was now stable, if not happy, in his lot and with his life. There was a delicate balance amongst the squatters. Most lived off the land, begging, dealing and some pretty crime. There were a couple with dogs and the rest kept their individual areas in the house. They looked after one another to keep a balance. That was until two new people moved in. There was something incongruous about their demeanour. By rights as squatters they would be poor and have only their feet to walk around. These two guys had their own van, which had a recent number plate. Gerald knew that most people like him would not have transport, or if they did it would have not been as clearly modern as this van. Gerald monitored his recent neighbours. They seemed more purposeful than most of the people in the area. Anyone in the squat would hide their belongings or be sleeping or chilling out from cider or drug-related abuse. Gerald knew these guys were different, and the level of their apparent industriousness combined with their relative wealth meant that they were probably involved in some higher form of mischief. They appeared to be well-fed, seemed to have supplies of snack food whenever he'd seen them, and seemed to be able to use normal pubs whenever they wanted. Gerald thought of them as the geezers. It seemed strange that they would use the squat at all. They had a van and took it when they left to go away, often for several days at a time. Gerald could tell when they were around because the van was pretty much their only mode of transport unless they walked to the nearby pub. The van was parked outside on the road, but twice it had been backed gingerly across the rubble at the front of the premises, right up to the main doors. The back doors of the van had been opened and something thrown inside. The first time it happened, Gerald was further away and unable to see what was happening, but this time Gerald was close enough, shielded by a low wall. The geezers were collecting something else, unaware of Gerald's presence. Gerald took a look in the van, not to steal, it was too close to his doorstep, just to know more about the two guys. Maybe it was cigarettes, booze, or maybe even drugs. He climbed over the low wall and edged to the back of the van, whose doors were still open. He felt the adrenaline as he peered around the rear doors and spotted two aluminium briefcases in the whole rear compartment. Next, he slipped onto the black back flooring of the van. He reached towards the nearest case and flicked the lock. To his surprise, the little silver clasp pinged open. Then he tried the second clasp. The same thing happened. He could open the case. Gerald looked around and listened. He could hear his breathing sounded loud in the back of the van. Gerald was used to the area around the squat and the noises of people moving. He could tell if anyone was close by. No sounds. He stood a little further back from the case, now at arm's length, and then, carefully, he raised its lid. Envelopes. The case contained envelopes. Not slim white ones, but thick orange-brown padded bags. He estimated there were about ten in the case. So he slipped one into his raincoat, hurriedly closed the case, and made his way back to his own side of the wall. He could hear his blood pumping in his head as he squatted down. He had taken a risk with these two guys. They were better fed and fitter than him. If they wanted to hurt him, it would be easy for them. 
Gerald decided he would go further away before he opened the envelope. He did not want to be caught red-handed. Instead, he would go to another spot just along the road. Not good as the squat, but a great hideaway. He crept out of his part of the squat and started walking along the road. He knew he was a well-known sighting in the area, so if he behaved, then no one would think anything of it. Ten minutes later, he was in his other hideaway. He pulled the envelope from his pocket. It was about the size of half a sheet of office paper. He fingered the top where it was sealed. There was nothing special about the way it had been closed. He opened it in a way that would allow him to reseal it if needed. This took a couple of minutes, and at the end he could pull the flap open with no tears or creases in the envelope. He peered inside. There was a small metal container inside. It looked like it was made of machined steel and had a rather unusual clasp at the top, which looked as if it needed a special machine to open it. He felt the weight in his hand. For its size it was heavy, and he assumed that the metal was thick. There was a small glass bulge at the top, like an indicator light, although it was not switched on. He wondered what would happen if he pressed it like a button, but he thought better of it. Then he noticed some small writing, a serial number, and a Russian inscription on the bottom of the container. It was too difficult to decipher. Then, on the side of the container, he noticed another small inscription. It was a symbol and a number four. He recognised the symbol from back when he played school-time computer games. It was just like the logo for a game called Bioshock. Gerald lost his nerve to delve any further with the container. It looked expensive, well-machined and indestructible. He wondered if the glass button was a control. Would it unlock the container? Or worse, would it arm it? Whatever it was, it looked as if they designed it to protect something expensive and to avert prying eyes. The apparent warning logo made him think it contained something dangerous. Aside from the word and the symbol, there were no other markings on the cylinder. There was nothing else in the padded envelope. He decided the container was full of something, but it was not like any drugs he'd ever seen. The guys who had been handling it were planning to deliver it and the rest of the contents to a buyer somewhere. He would hide it somewhere safe for now and await developments. No one had seen him at the squat while the van was there, and now he had successfully moved the envelope away. He found a special corner and wedged the envelope and its contents behind, then replacing a couple of broken boards so the area looked undisturbed. He thought the location was especially useful because it was so totally random. Gerald decided to take a long walk before returning to the squat. It would put distance and an apparent alibi be between him and the people with the van. Back at the squat, the loading of the van was complete. In total, six cases. No bigger than briefcases had been placed in the van. The driver was getting ready to close the doors when he noticed another member of the squat returning. The newcomer swayed towards them, apparently looking for some cider money from the driver or his passenger. He noticed the open doors and the pile of aluminium cases in the back and staggered towards them. The driver and his passenger looked briefly at one another and then at the man. With a sudden movement, the passenger swung his arm towards the drunk and chopped him across the neck, crumpling him to the ground. Let go, said the passenger and he and the driver ambled to the cab of the van and pulled away. The drunk lay where he had fallen, in the mud of the yard behind the van. An hour later, when Gerald returned, the drunk was still laying there in the same position. Gerald noticed the body and walked cautiously forward, listening for any other sounds. He could see the van tracks and boot marks where the driver and passenger had been standing, and knew what had happened. 
Gerald recognised the fallen person as Ben and shook his shoulder. It wasn't unusual to see Ben slumped somewhere. He had something of an alcohol problem. Gerald and Ben shared the adjacent property but usually gave each other a lot of space. Ben was breathing and slightly choking as well as reeking of cider and something that smelled like garden compost. Gerald gave Ben a couple more shakes until he started to groan. Whether it was alcohol or violence related was hard to tell, although it was clear that Ben was in a bad way. Ben? shouted Gerald as he shook Ben's shoulder. Ben opened his eyes and spluttered. They hit me. Yes, yeah, said Gerald, not completely convinced. Who? I just got back, explained Ben. I'd been drinking, and when I got back here, there were those two guys with their van. I was just asking them if they had some spare change for me when they hit me. Are you sure that's all? persisted Gerald. Oh, yeah, continued Ben. The van had a lot of silver cases in the back. They looked like something expensive, maybe jewellery. 